Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. Hope you're all having a wonderful Sunday morning. Hope you've been able to listen to the songs already and read the scripture reading for this morning. Uh, we miss you. We long for you to be able to be here. We're looking forward to the day where um, we are able to gather together again. We pray that you're feeling a little bit more comfortable each week and uh, what's been going on, and, uh, and yet we're thankful for the opportunity we still have to, to gather online. But I don't want you to get too used to it, okay, because this is still not the way it should be. We need you here. We want you here, and we're praying, uh, and it is our desire for you to be uh, feeling safe and comfortable being here. We long for that day for each and every one of you. We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. In uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, really we're looking at the second half of verse 10 in uh, a sermon that's entitled with a question, what is lacking? And so I hope you've got your Bibles out and open and I hope you'll read with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. Let's read that here together. The Apostle Paul says, for what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we come before uh, your throne of grace with great, great confidence, uh, knowing that in all former times, uh, all we could merit before your throne is judgment. But now we can actually refer to your throne as a throne of grace because in Christ we have received grace and we have received his favor. And Father, we thank you that as your children, we can come before you and we can ask you that you would sanctify us by the preaching and teaching and reading and singing of your word and know that that particular prayer is answered. Lord, you will not deny your people sanctification, and we thank you for that. We know you will not deny us sanctification, not for our sake, but for the sake of your own Son and glory. So, Lord, we, just, we simply pray that you would sanctify your people this morning. We come before you expectant of that, expecting that if your word is proclaimed, that your people will hear and our hearts will be molded, our affections will be changed unto your glory and we will be sanctified. Father, we pray that it would be so. We pray that in the precious name of your son, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, you are missing something this morning. Every one of you who is listening to this or hearing this sermon, you are missing something. You may think that you have everything that you need. Indeed, you've probably heard me even say from this pulpit that we have all things in Christ, and that is true, but I will also say that you are actually missing or lacking something. In our text this morning, we find in this half of a verse that the Thessalonians were lacking something. Something was deficient, specifically in their faith. 
Again, we're looking at the last half of verse 10, but we know that verse 9 and 10 really go together. Paul asks in verse 9 a rhetorical question. He says, how could we possibly give sufficient thanks for the faith that you, the Thessalonians, possess? For your sanctification, for your salvation, for the good news that we receive, that you've continued to stand in faith and in love and in hope. How can we ever thank God enough or sufficiently for that? And then he adds, as we pray most exceedingly. That's the context. Their thanksgiving was offered in times of prayer as they prayed consistently and fervently for two things for this church. They prayed that Paul and Silas first would have an opportunity to go and see them face to face, to speak to them, uh, that they would be able to lay his, uh, their eyes upon him, that they would be able to hear his voice and he would speak to him. That's the first thing they were praying for. But what was that purpose? That's the second thing they were praying for. To perfect what was lacking in their faith. And so what does, mean, what does Paul mean to perfect what is lacking in your faith like he writes here to the Thessalonians? Uh, remember in the context, Paul had already went on and on about the faith of this young fledging church from the very outset of his letter. He has commended them for their faith. He has communicated that their faith has resounded all over the place from Macedonia and Achaia. All have heard about the great faith of these young believers in Thessalonica. And while, yes, he was concerned about their faith, that possibly they had been tempted by the tempter, remember, he sent Timothy, and Timothy brought back the good report that they stood in faith and love. So for this reason, Paul writes that in all of Paul and Silas' affliction and stress, that they'd actually been comforted by the faith of the Thessalonians. Yet, Paul writes that I'm praying fervently, I'm praying persistently because there's actually something that is lacking or missing in your faith. There is a deficiency. So our task this morning is to understand three things. What was the deficiency in their faith? So perfect what exactly? How are we to understand that? But I also want to ask perfect how? How was Paul going to complete or perfect or restore what was lacking in their faith? And then ultimately, perfect why? Why was this of such great importance that Paul prayed night and day exceedingly so that he might go and be with the Thessalonians in order to supply that which was lacking in their faith? Those are our questions, and they'll kind of serve as our guide and our outline as we uh, go through this. And so we will begin at the beginning. Perfect what? What is it that needs to be perfected or supplied? We need to understand what it was that the Thessalonian believers actually lacked in their faith. And I, I think it's a reasonable place to start to begin to ask, what is faith? We need to understand faith. What does Paul mean when he says faith in our particular passage? And we might assume we know the answer to this, but I really think that many of us misunderstand what faith is. In the New Testament, this term faith is usually the reference to one of two things. Uh, faith is used to refer to the testimony of truth or the convictions grounded on that truth. 
I'll say that again. Faith is either used to refer to the testimony of truth or, or the convictions grounded on that truth. So it can be the truth, the deposit of truth, the testimony of the apostles handed down and trusted to trained men in order to proclaim it. This is the kind of faith we see in passages like Jude 3. Uh, where Jude wrote, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He's referring to that deposit of truth. The second primary way that the word of faith is used to refer to the convictions that are based on the hearing of that testimony so the word faith can refer to the testimony itself or uh, it can refer to the convictions that are grounded because of that testimony. Uh, for instance, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 10. We know this very well. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, it's worth noting, I think, that faith is not some unfounded hope in something that defies logic and seems highly improbable. That's not actual faith. We talk about this all the time. We talked about this several times through our study in the Gospel of John. Faith is not blind. But that's often how we conceptualize faith, isn't it? Reason is only going to take me so far. Logic's only going to take me so far. And then ultimately, I just have to have faith. As though faith and reason actually contradict each other. Never. I'm afraid that's how too many of us continue to conceive of faith. We think that faith begins where reason ends, and that's simply not the case. In fact, this view is contrary to the way that Apostle Paul conceives of faith. Paul believed that faith is a conviction based on the hearing of the word of Christ. He believed it was a conviction based on hearing the word of Christ. In fact, you remember back in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, we've read this countless times through our study in Thessalonians. Paul reasoned with the Jews, it says, the devout Greeks and the God-fears. He reasoned with them, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The Bible says he reasoned with them. He proved to them. And then we read in this verse 4 that some of them were persuaded. Paul didn't say, listen, you... You just have to take my word for it. Just go ahead and, and take a leap of faith and believe what I'm saying. Paul persuades them that the Old Testament actually bears witness to the fact that the Messiah had to suffer. Paul's not calling them to some sort of blind faith, but to have a conviction that the things he is saying are true. As true as the things that you see before you. That is what faith is. Now consider this, since it is a conviction, there is a specific content to that conviction. That conviction has content, a specific object that faith lays hold of. 
the ears that uh, hear the proclamation of a truth claim. Some very specific news is proclaimed. A proclamation is made that the Son of God was incarnated, that he lived a perfect life, that he fulfilled the whole law for his people, and at the end of his life that he died in place of his people, the perfect atoning sacrifice for his people. That is a truth claim, friends. It either happened or it didn't. And, and the ears hear and the ear either says, yes, I'm convicted that this is true. I'm convinced that this is actually something that happened or the ears reject it as false. Faith is grasping that truth, having that conviction that what is proclaimed is true, as true as it is that you are listening to this this very moment, right? I can't see you, but I can see the camera. I can see the views as they come in. I know that somebody somewhere is clicking on this link and listening to this. Uh, that is no more true than the gospel proclamation is true. It's not some unfounded hope in something that defies logic. Faith is actually trust born out of conviction, not trust in something ludicrous. By the way, this is why at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, we have a statement of faith. We state that we believe certain things. Our statement of faith is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You can get a copy or request a copy anytime. It's a confession that sets out in no uncertain terms that what, uh, what it is that we claim to believe. We are convinced that these things are true. Our faith is not some vague, hazy, unclear thing. We have the word of God and we are convicted that what God has said in his word is true. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and warn you. I'm, I'm about to get up on a soapbox, okay? Uh, I, I can't help it. I, I wrote this into my sermon even. So this is, this is something I'm prepared to do. I'm preparing right now to get up on a soapbox. Uh, and here's the soapbox. I, I believe that a big part of why the church in the West is so weak and, and so full of unregenerate, nominal, worldly Christians is because we have become, by and large, anti-intellectual. Uh, we refuse to use our brains. Uh, we separate thinking from faith somehow. Uh, we say faith is the experience of some sort of feeling. A, a spirit-filled church is one where everybody's got their hands raised and the music's so good and you are emotionally moved. Never mind that it's supposed to be the spirit of truth that is present. The reality is we live in a culture in church where we despise theology, orthodoxy, and creed while embracing the superficial, shallow teaching of men and women who value inclusion more than they value truth. That's the reality. And listen, here, here's our defense, and I get it. People will say this and they'll defend this and say, but, but doctrine divides I mean, I've listened to countless arguments of people arguing and, and being rude to one another over doctrine. But listen to me, friends. Doctrine is God's idea. Uh, doctrine is just teaching. Doctrine is just saying that, that God has actually 
taught something, that he desires for us to know and understand something. Doctrine is God's idea. Ignorance for the sake of inclusion is man's idea. God's idea, man's idea. I'll take God's idea every time. Church family, listen to me. Doctrine matters. What you believe matters. The content of your faith matters. There is doctrine and theology on every page of the Bible. It is not optional. It is not simply for scholars. Listen, church family, your faith is grounded in theology one way or another. Whether it's the view of the true and living God who has revealed himself in the scriptures or the God of your own imagination, you are living in accord with some doctrine whether you claim it or not. You cannot escape it or avoid it. See, see the problem isn't doctrine. The problem is us. The problem is we squabble over the insignificant while refusing to contend for the essential, central doctrines of the faith. And so, hear me, I, I get it. Not all doctrine is equal. For example, I hold the conviction that only believers should be baptized. While my Presbyterian brothers and sisters wrongly believe that we should baptize our unregenerate children. And, and hear me, this is an important issue. It's important. It's not central. It's important, but, but it's not central. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus lived and died too. They believe in Jesus, but their doctrine is very, very different. Our theology is contradictory. The content of our faith, they, it's worlds apart. What we believe about what Jesus did and who he was, it's, it's, it's opposite. There is no fellowship between myself and Jehovah's Witnesses, I can fellowship with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. So there's that oft-quoted adage uh, that I think is very helpful here. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity or love. Now here's an obvious question. How, how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference between those essential, central doctrines and those peripheral doctrines? How do we know well, for some reason, we seem to think that because it's just so difficult to distinguish that, what we need to do is leave it to the guys in the ivory tower who were in seminary to somewhere somehow tell us which ones are important and which aren't, or just to avoid the whole mess, period. That's not the case. How, how do we distinguish? Well, I would argue to distinguish between the essential and the peripheral by learning more about Scripture, not less, <laughs> By exposing yourself more to the teaching of Scripture. By caring about what God says more, not less. Okay, I'm officially stepping down from my soapbox. Uh, let's get back to our question. What, what was it that's lacking in the Thessalonians' faith? What was the deficiency? Uh, Paul doesn't say explicitly what he has in mind here. But it, but it seems likely that what he had in mind was a wide range of teaching. There were things that he did not have time to explain about God, about Christ, about them, about sanctification, about a whole slew of doctrinal 
issues. And so what was lacking, if we're to summarize what was lacking in two words, I would say this, gospel truths. That is what was lacking from their faith. Gospel truths. In fact, based on what Paul writes in the rest of this very book, we can see what he had in mind. I think specifically the doctrine of sanctification is what he has in view here. He goes on to expound many different aspects of that. That God's people must be holy. He reminds them of how they are to live sexually moral lives. He's going to remind them in chapter 4. He reminds them of their responsibility to love one another. He gets into even their theology of work in chapter 4, as well as their eschatology. But, But I do want to point out, without getting into the details of what Paul brings before them, And the rest of the letter, everything that Paul brings forward in a doctrinal sense is practical. And and at the end of the day, friends, I want you to hear me. All theology at the end of the day is practical. This is not simply about helping them understand who Christ is just for the sake of being able to answer some sort of questions on a test. Paul has in view here right living that is shaped and formed by right doctrine. That's extremely practical. It's not just so they know and understand. These words were meant to strengthen the brothers in their faith, to encourage the sisters to strive for holiness, to help them in their weakness, to help them in their grief as they said goodbye to brothers and sisters who ultimately died before the return of Christ. That's practical. And so gospel truths, they're always practical. That is the what of what was lacking from their faith. It was were lacking gospel truths. Remember, Paul only had three weeks at, at most, maybe six weeks with this church. Could you imagine having to learn all about the Christian life that you needed in three to six weeks? So Paul says, I'm, I want to perfect what was lacking from your faith. And what's lacking are some of these core gospel truths. Well, let's ask the next question. How? Perfect how? So how does Paul address that particular deficiency? Well, in a couple words, I would say instruction or teaching. Uh, Paul wanted to see them face to face to pass on the gospel truth that they lacked. In fact, Paul writes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. See, Christ supplies what is lacking for his body through the testimony of the apostles and prophets, which we now have recorded in the New Testament. The proclamation of the evangelists and the the preaching and teaching of the shepherds and brothers. These are the gifts that Christ gives to his church in order to build them up. And so, for instance, let me just ask you, when, when your body lacks food, what do you do? You eat, right? When your body lacks water, what do you do? You drink. When your body lacks rest, what do you do? Get rest. Well, when you lack faith, you get gospel truth. That's what you do. And so Paul wanted to expound the gospel and instruct them on how to live in accordance with it. And I would just want to point out, based on that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way that this happens is in the church through the preaching and teaching of God's word by those gifted to do so. 
Paul didn't write them a brief letter and say, okay, hey, you guys got the spirit. Now go on and figure it out on your own. He sent Timothy who had hands laid on him because he received a gift. He was exercising that gift as a gospel minister. And remember, as we're talking about this, this is not merely an intellectual thing. This is not just a head thing. Don't miss this. These doctrines are the very thing that cause our hearts to worship. There is no true worship without true doctrine. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how authentic it appears. If there isn't true doctrine, there cannot be true worship. If it's not grounded in a right understanding of God, it is not the worship that God seeks. Yet, when your mind is convinced of the word of Christ, your heart cannot remain detached and apathetic. It cannot. Impossible. In fact, I would argue that if, if your heart is cold to doctrine, it's probably because your mind is not properly convinced. You may hear the doctrine taught, you may hear the scriptures being expounded, and you may think, I agree, sure. And yet your heart is still cold. And I believe it's because you're not sincerely convinced that these things are true. You cannot be fully convinced and remain apathetic. If your affections are waning, friends, it, it means you don't need better music. You need to hear and believe God's truth. Sure, you can have outward appearance of knowing these things, but there is a world of difference between knowing the answers to a test and knowing intimately and with absolute certainty the truthfulness of those answers. For, for example, I can say, for instance, yes, God is sovereign. I know that. I know God's sovereign. I believe that. But does my mind really grasp what that means so that it impacts my heart? Do I really understand that Jesus taught that not a hair can fall from my head unto the ground that it, apart from the will of my Father? Do I believe he's sovereign in that way? Do I understand that in a way that makes a difference in a daily life? I can say God is my Father. But has my heart understood the meaning of the word Father? Uh, beloved, all of us, child of the one true God, do I get that? Do we really understand that, friends? Let, let's be honest. There, every one of us in this listening to this longs for the love of an earthly father. We're wired for it, right? You can suppress it, but deep down we long for the love of an earthly father. Yet the love of our heavenly father far exceeds it. God's love is more beautiful than anything your eyes have ever beheld and will cause more joy than you've ever experienced if you understood it rightly, even for but a moment. Here's the point. When you really get doctrine here you'll have it here when you really get it here you'll have it here you see worship isn't some emotion that's manufactured by music and lighting it's the fruit of faith it's the meeting of truth and affections 
And of course, let's not stop there because we don't want to just start stop with the head and the heart because our conduct is simply the outworking of what we really believe and what we really value. It's not just head and heart. It's also hands. Our conduct is either governed by gospel truths or by ignorance and lies. That, that's why those who claim to believe it and yet are consistently and unrepentantly disobeying the gospel have never really heard it. So the, the perfect how is through instruction and teaching, but that instruction and teaching is not just centered upon intellectual knowledge for the, the puffing up of our minds. It flows through the affection of our hearts and will lead to the conduct of our hands. Now we ask our final question. Brings us to why. Perfect why. So if the what is gospel truths and the how is by the preaching and teaching of the proclamation of that gospel truth, why in the world is that all that important? Well, in a couple words, it's important for this. The why, perfect why, it's because of sanctification and perseverance. Sanctification and perseverance. In fact, if you would read what Paul has even said in this very chapter in verse 13, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is his prayer. Paul understands that prayer is answered by the means of preaching and teaching God's gospel truths. It doesn't just happen. I, I can pray for your sanctification all day long, but if you are not constantly and consistently being exposed to gospel truths, you will not grow in the faith. Paul desired that Thessalonians and us be protected from, as he says in Ephesians 4, being tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Let's be honest, many of us in the past have been blown to and fro by the wind of doctrine. A temptation, when that happens, is to begin to despise teaching. We grow weary of striving for a deeper understanding of those gospel truths. But be warned, brothers and sisters, to give up on understanding what God teaches us in his, words, in his word is like giving up on eating because you've choked on something. No one does that. You, you don't stop eating because you've had food that was bitter. Without food and water, your physical body will soon die. Well, likewise, without the word of Christ, your faith will perish. Paul has already said in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and 3, that he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we were appointed to this. He's saying this is why I sent Timothy to you in the first place, is to exhort you and encourage you to establish you in the faith, that you stand firm. So that the tempter would not be successful in his tempting. So that they would not be tossed to and fro. In fact, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, our scripture reading for the day. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. 
Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. See, there was something lacking not only in the Thessalonians, but in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor. His teaching supplied what was lacking. So that when Paul says again in 2 Timothy, in a way, a passage we're familiar with in 3, 16 through 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Don't miss this. Paul is saying the word of God is there for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness in order to make the man of God complete. Why? Because he's not complete. You're not complete. I am not complete. So we actually have to strive to know what it is that God has taught. To let gospel truth so mold and shape our mind that our heart is conformed and worship is the cause. Discipleship is the fruit. Christian, we, much like the Thessalonians, are missing something this morning. We have deficiencies. How do I know that? Because you haven't been glorified. That's how I know. So, so while Paul might, and I believe he would, commend this wonderful church for their faith, their love, their hope, I do not think the Apostle Paul would be content with it. God speaks through Paul this morning saying, let me perfect what is lacking in your faith. Paul, the apostle, still speaks. He is instructing and giving us what we still need. So the answer is merely this, feast on his word. As we said a couple weeks ago, drink deep from this well of truth. Receive the gifts of shepherds and teachers who expound this word and perfect what is lacking in your faith. See, church family, we're missing something this morning. But praise be to God that he continues to supply it. Praise be to God for the gracious provision of his holy Bible and the people he's given us to teach his holy word. Don't let your faith wither, church. You need this food. You need to feast. So the the question is, how are you feasting upon God's word? And let me just encourage you, the ways we do that here at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, yes, um, this is worship. Our Sunday morning service is worship. And so we are engaged with teaching and instructing, preaching God's word that you would uh, mix your, your, your mind and your heart, your truth and affections coming together in worship in response to God's word, yes. But we also have what we call grow services here at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables with the purpose of teaching and instruction for your growth. And those services are Sunday school and Wednesday night. Our Sunday school is, a, is an opportunity for you to hear from so many of our gifted uh, members of this church who are gifted in teaching and bringing God's word. And so if you're not into a Sunday school class, then, then I, I fail to understand if you're really diving in deep and feasting from gospel truth. As well as our Wednesday night service. We know many of our, our church members are serving during Sunday school. And if that's the case, then Wednesday night discipleship becomes important for you. 
And so if, if you're not engaged in a growth service, again, it, it causes my heart to wonder where your desire is to drink deep from the well of gospel truth as a member of this local church. And that's, that's our heart here, is we want every one of our members to worship, to grow, and to serve. This is about growing in Christ. This is about worshiping Christ. So, so the question is, are you, are you taking every opportunity that God has given you to perfect what is lacking in your faith by exposing yourself to gospel truth. My prayer is that we would all seek to grow in this particular area and that God would continue to supply that which we are lacking. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, you please give us an unquenchable desire to know you and to know you better. And, and where should we go for that desire? To the world? No, Father, not even to which that you created. We go to your word, to your scriptures, for you've revealed all that we need to know for life and godliness in them. You've revealed yourself in the scriptures. You've revealed yourself permanently in and through your son that we find clothed in the pages of the New Testament. Would you please help us, your people, to desire your word, to feast on it, to speak it, to encourage one another with it. Father, would you through your word supply that which is lacking in our faith, that we might not be tossed to and fro, but we would stand, that we would be sanctified. Father, that we would persevere to the end, that we would be found faithful on the day of Jesus' return. We pray this in his holy name, amen. Church family, for our invitation, if, if you've never had a heart that's even been engaged in worship and you're not even sure you really know the Lord Jesus Christ, well, the good news is that while we were yet sinners, Christ still died for us. See, our sin offended a holy God who is perfect and good in every way, who, whose world we live in, who's the creator and sustainer of this world. Our sin has caused us to rebel against him, but he sent his son Christ to perfectly obey his law and to be a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. So that if you'd repent of your sins and place your faith in him, you may have life and life eternal. And if, if you've never done that this, this morning, listening to this, um, please reach out to us. We'd love to walk you through what repentance and faith looks like. We've walked through faith already this morning, but we'd love to share even deeper with you from the well of this gospel truth. And church family, the application, the invitation for us is that we grow. We desire more and more of God's word, um, that we desire to take every opportunity we can get uh, to drink deep from the well of gospel truth. I'm praying the Lord's convicting your heart this morning. As always, we long to hear from you and, and look forward to seeing you soon. We love you, church family. God bless you.